Father, we come to you expectant because we know you're a God who loves to speak. So would you soften our hearts? Would you open our deaf ears that we might hear you? And we pray with your help that we might be a people who change, who who increasingly know you and love you, that we might love people well. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things um, I've really twigged this week as we look at these psalms over the summer, sorry, these (laughs) prayers of Paul over the summer, is that um, we must try and understand why he was writing to understand why he prays for what he prays for. So as with last week in Corinth, Paul is not primarily writing to us. We can't just sort of write ourselves in there into the letter and say, what are you saying to me, Paul? Because first and foremost, he was writing to them, to a real people. He wasn't writing into a vacuum. There were normal Christians with normal issues, struggling with normal things, so maybe the kind of things that we struggle with. They weren't perfect, either as individuals or as a church. And so Paul writes and he prays into those things that the prayer is specific to the Philippians in one sense. And we do that first step to understand why he was praying these things for them, and then we think about what it means for us. Now, we preached through Philippians a couple of years ago, but if you weren't around, um, have a look with me. You, you might know, you might remember that it looks like what's going on in Philippi is that there is outside pressure and persecution on this church in Philippi, and there's all kinds of squeezing going on. You get it in Acts 16, you see it there in 1 verse 29 as well. Um, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It seems to be there's external pressure resulting in internal squabbles and divisions and tensions. And so he'll end up being quite explicit and saying stuff like 1 verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Or or 2 verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of of the others. Or then even more pointedly in 4 verse 2, when he gets quite personal, do you remember, I plead with Yodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clements and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So, In the one hand, you've got this pressure of division inside the church. They're splintering. But then it seems there's another pressure going on as well in Philippi. It seems there are other voices there urging the people to jettison the gospel of Paul. Maybe to jettison it for a more culturally appropriate gospel, a more culturally appropriate message that builds perhaps even on the Jewish law, which means Paul will spend a whole lot of time in chapter 3 you know, the letter, chapter 3, setting out his Jewish credentials and all the kind of stuff that he could be tempted by and trusting in. But now he says, verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. It seems that the guys who do peddle those kinds of ideas are urging these young Christians to go back tempting them away from the gospel of grace and back into law and where you come from and your background and that kind of stuff. 
And you see, maybe I'm slow here, but within that environment, if that's the context that he's writing into, that there are divisions in the church on one side, there's confusion in the church on the other side, then to me that makes a whole lot more sense as to why Paul prays these things in verses 9 to 11. Do you get it to a church that is experiencing division and they're sniping at each other? He says, I pray that your love will abound more and more. To a church where there's confusion and muddles perhaps about what to trust in. Paul prays for a depth of insight for them. Paul prays for them to be able to discern what is best, he says. So let me read 9 to 11 again. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And have those two ideas in mind as I read it. So divisions and confusions. They're the two things. Let me read 9 to 11 again and see if they make a bit more sense as to quite what's going on. He says this, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may, you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Okay, what we're going to do, we're going to jump in, and we're going to do this sort of reverse engineering thing. We're going to see where it gets to first, what the results are first, the expected results, the goal, the end game, and then track back to try and work out how we've got there. So what is the end game? Well, it seems to be, verse 10 and 11, a, a mature church ready for the day of Christ, ready for when Jesus comes back again. That is the result of his prayer, end of verse 10. And they're ready because... Because they're filled with the fruit of righteousness. They, they, they look like Jesus. Pure and blameless, perfected, beautiful, finally finished. It can be so easy just to think about what needs to be done for the day or the week ahead and sorting stuff out. But Paul is far less short-sighted. He has so much more of a longer-term view in mind. He prays in the light of Jesus coming back again. The final act of history. Do you, do you long for that time? That time when, when you'll no longer be wrestling and grappling with your selfish self each day. When seeking to put to death a sinful nature each and every morning, each and every moment will, will be a thing of the past. It'll be gone. Because you'll look like him now. When, when your heart won't naturally veer towards self. Or where you're always asking, what do I get out of this situation? What's in it for me, please? Or when you battle with that sin and that situation or that person, they will never plague you again. Don't, don't you long for that? When we are filled with the fruit of righteousness, because that is what Paul prays for. And yet he prays for it that we may have it increasingly now. So it's not just a hope out there somewhere, but it's an increasing present reality day by day. It's as if he's looking at an orchard and he prays that one day he will see these branches laden with ripe fruit, ready for the harvest. Trees being what trees are meant to be, but growing and maturing now. Increasingly looking now, what we will look like then. It makes me ask the question, have I, have I stalled? 
Am I kind of standing still when it comes to this growth in Christ-likeness? Am I aware and active? And do I want to grow to be like him? Are these the kind of things that I'm wrestling with daily, struggling to put to death the sinful nature and to put on Christ as he enables us, as he's at work in us? But that's where Paul wants us to get to. That's what he's looking ahead to. And yet he's praying that increasingly we will look like that now. And actually, if you know the letter, and as... Jonathan read to us. He's already spoken about some of these things. So 1 verse 6 is that sort of famous verse that you get on Christian posters. That we can be confident that God will finish what he started. Not because they're amazing, but because our God is faithful and good. And yet Paul is confident of it. And so he prays for it. Okay, so end game perspective, this is where he's looking. This is the result that he's longing for. Paul wants them to increasingly look like Jesus, ready for his return, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's what he's praying for the Philippians. But then how is he going to get there? Two points. The first one is in a divided church, he prays for love. That their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Love is what drives it all. Love is the bedrock for this prayer and increasing love for one another as the church. He doesn't say actually who the love is for, but I take it from the context and what we've already said that primarily it's a love for one another. It's love within the church to grow. It's for the people sat next to them. It's the faces in the room. And when Paul writes to churches, usually he gives thanks to them for their love for each other. He does in Ephesians, he does in Colossians, he does in Thessalonians, and we get to Philippians, and it's not there. In fact, he'll explicitly go on and tell them that they can make his joy complete by having the same love and being one in spirit and of one mind. Now imagine the letter arrives for them as a church, and the leader's reading it out, or maybe Epaphroditus is reading it out, the people are gathered, hushed anticipation, sense of expectation. Paul is, Paul is held in high esteem. There's an awe. And then there's an awkwardness. Because there are eyes looking around the room. Because everyone knows about the pride and the disunity and the problems and how it's affected church life and how the body's not really getting on that well. And Paul, more than that, Paul knows them and and word has reached him and he's praying for them. But more than that, he, he's not just praying for them. He tells them that he's praying for them. Awkward church meeting. Why? Why does it matter so much? Why does this love for Christians matter so much? I take it fundamentally because of who our God is and what he is like. He is the perfect, good overflowing, abundant, abounding, generous, kind one. He bubbles over like a fountain. Love just bubbles out of him. The Trinitarian God loves not in an egotistical way, but in an other-centered, unselfish community, three in one and one in three. The Father loves the Son, who loves the Spirit, and so on. That is the kind of God he is. And then he loves his people and draws them into that love. Which means he, he's kind to us and sacrificial and patient. Even when we were his enemies, he loved us. Literally in his son, chapter 2, making himself nothing, taking on flesh, pouring himself out for his people. 
giving us what we need regardless of the cost. That's the kind of God we serve, God of love. And if that's what he is like, then to be one of his children is to be one who loves, one who is marked by love. A love that abounds more and more, says Paul. It's by our love that the world will know we're his. It really matters when we don't love, says Paul, and so love each other, Christians. Sounds obvious, but of course at this point we need to just think, actually, what definition of love are we working from? That really matters. Love in the Bible, it seems to me, the love that he prays for here is not on the one hand a sort of Hollywood, mushy feeling love, knight in shining armour type love. But then on the other hand, it's not simply an active duty job type love as well. It is active, but it's profoundly more than just active. Elsewhere, Paul will say we can do all kinds of things and we can be extraordinarily gifted. But if we don't have love, we're like a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. It seems the love that Paul speaks of is a, is a both and. It's a, an active thing, but it's founded upon an, an affection thing, a heart thing. It's not either or, but both. It's wanting the very best for someone, wanting them to grow in maturity, godliness, but then helping that to come about by service and care and kindness. But then if you look at his prayer, actually the love is defined in a slightly more specific way. He prays for a love that is shaped, I think, by our knowledge of God, verse 9. I think that's what's going on in the second half of verse 9, a love abounding more and more in knowledge. And I think the knowledge there is a relational knowledge of who God is. It's not the information knowledge, it's not knowing more about God, but it is actually knowing God more. And as you know God more, that shapes the way you love, the, you love people. And that leads then into depth of insight, which seems to be a sort of perception or understanding. It's slightly hard to get your mind around, but, but I think if he made us, and if we know him better, then we'll know how to live better and love better because it's his world. We will be increasingly shaped by our knowledge of him. And so we will increasingly be the people we were made to be, the, the humans that we were made to be in the image of Christ. That's striking because so easily we can play the two off against each other and we think either you're a sort of soft person of love who's kind and comforting and kind of good for a hug and gentle and caring and, or, or you're hard, you're a hard person who's all about wisdom and insight and clarity and truth and... But Paul prays for both, a love, but then a love that has insight and is wise for the Christians in Philippi. Again, maybe he's aware of some of the context of what's going on and the squabbles between them. He, he prays for a divided people that they might have a depth of insight, maybe step back from the fray, maybe take some deep breaths, maybe grow up a bit, maybe put your pride away a bit, maybe deal with stuff, maybe say sorry, maybe reconcile. Maybe Euodia and Syntyche, chapter 4, have insight into the implications of your squabbles and your two teams kind of squaring off against each other. 
Did you see that Jesus has united the church and you are dividing it? Maybe that's the depth of insight. Maybe the God will give them a depth of insight into how the world sees a divided church and just looks on confused. Thinking if, if this is so important, then why are they always squabbling? Or maybe the implications of the pastoral fallout for younger Christians in the church who just don't quite know what's going on and whether to back and who to back and how it works. And you see, when you're angry with someone, and when there, there are divisions and fights in the family, when there's pride and frustrations and you're feeling entitled or like standing on your rights or you've been overlooked or it's just not fair, then suddenly being reminded of what our God is like, getting to know him better, how he loves us, what that love really looks like, the one who made himself nothing for his enemies, to make us his beloved people, it brings us up short and it humbles us. His love for us means that we can love each other. And in light of 2 verse 5 to 11, suddenly our pride is popped. I have to say at Maldon Road, I'm so thankful for the way that you love each other. I'll say for the way that we love each other. At times genuinely blown away. Love that abounds. It's costly, it's sacrificial, it's painful, it's persevering. I think in this last week of people who, who are prepared to bring folk to church week by week by week who otherwise wouldn't be able to be here. Think of the ongoing care of some of our over 55s, practical help and love. Think of the months of people willing to drive Brian Hennigolf to go see Jan, um, first of all in Bicester and now in Yarnton. Think of people who have organised those rotors and who chivvy us. Think of the welcome that many new people have as they come to Magdalen Road and just talk about, I just felt like part of the family. I felt people actually loved me and cared. I think of a final year Oxford student who spent most of the year making toasties pretty much every week for our Sunday evening service. Think of the commitment to meet up with broken and hurting people. Someone to just get alongside them see how they're doing, to pray, to reach out. I think of the sensitive pursuit of people in those kinds of situations. Not willing to let up, but actually keep going and keep loving. I think of meals and food provided for people who are struggling, or visits, or generosity, all kinds of things. I think of prayer warriors who in love choose to pray for people rather than doing other things. As they open the door to prayer, they're closing the door to television or whatever it might be that they would rather be doing, perhaps. I see a, a living body where love abounds, and I'm humbled. People who have received love from the Lord and then show it to one another. But then I take it as Paul, as Paul prays for the Philippians, so it can be our prayer for each other too that we might do this better. Friends, that we might know our God better and so know how to love each other better. The first thing that he prays for in a divided church is love. He prays against division and for love. The second one, though, was in a confused church, he prays for understanding. 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And as you read the letter, you do sense that the issues there aren't just relational issues. There are some theological stuff going on as well, and particularly the situation in chapter 3. Do flick over. It's page 1180 if you've got a church Bible. That seems to be at the heart of it. And it asks the question of the Christian, when push comes to shove, when it comes down to it, what do you trust in? Or maybe what are you tempted to trust in? Or practically, what do we trust in? Because we know the right answer and we can tick the box. But actually, where does our heart go? What is the basis for your friendship with God? What is the, the basis for growing in godliness and Christ-likeness? And there was this group in Philippi who seemed to be peddling the idea. And actually, they were a people who seemed to follow around Paul as he was traveling around the place, trying to undo what he had done. And And for them, it was about your track record, your family, your bloodline, your law-keeping, the boxes that you could tick. Those were the things, they said, that God is happy with. Those are the things that count with him. But Paul says, well, I used to think that. Do you know, but then I met Jesus. And do you know, 3 verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But then I met Jesus. And I see now that they are, when it comes down to it, worthless, rubbish, nothing. Nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And so do you see to this confused church, he prays that they may discern what is best. And I wonder if Paul is dealing with that, actually foundationally. That is the discerning what is best in the Philippian context. It it was common and it still is very common for people to be confused about this. What do you trust in? Whom do you trust in? Do you trust in in your performance or, or in his performance? In what you can do or in what he has done? Do you trust them or do you trust what Paul is saying? And in our trust, is it not just a tick of the box, but actually where our hearts go for our security in him? It's a really important question and it's so important that we get it right. Maybe you've never quite twigged on this one. Maybe you've hung around church for years and... Do you see any kind of relationship with God based on whether we deserve it, whether we've done enough, or on the stuff that we do, always leaves us falling short. And so he prays that they may discern what is best, and that really matters. I wonder if that's a foundational question of discerning what is best, what that means, but then that trickles down into the rest of life, into the nooks and crannies of our weeks. Once you build your life on Christ, what does that mean for Monday? What does that mean for the decisions that we have to make? How does it shape everything else? Your your life is a story of choices. Every day you have alternatives to decide between not your breakfast cereal or your clothes, but what you do say or what you don't say, or when you say stuff or whether you say stuff, how you prioritize stuff, how you fill your week. And if you have a growing knowledge of who God is, which then shapes our love for one another, 
which then means we can discern what is best, then he's praying that the choices they make will be the right choices. That we might be a people who live well in his world. But it's complicated. It is really complicated. In a complicated world with basically an infinite number of choices, what does it mean in that daily sense to discern what is best? Maybe it's whether you go for that job, and there are great benefits there, but it's moving to a new city and you're not quite sure about friendships or churches or being isolated. How do you discern what is best? Maybe it's whether you spend your money on that thing that you've been saving for. But there's that niggling doubt that if you get it, you're just not quite sure you're going to be able to give it up. Will it mean too much to you? You know what your heart is like. How do you discern what is best? Maybe it's knowing what to fill your diary with each week. Who to fill your diary with each week. Whether to rest, how much to rest, how you rest, how to do hospitality, who to do hospitality with. How do you discern what is best? It works at the individual level, I take it. It works at the church level as well. Remember, this was a a letter written not just to people, but to a people, to a church family in Philippi. What does it mean for a whole church to discern what is best? What does corporate discerning look like? Maybe it's how we focus our attention as as a body. Maybe it's the kind of thing we push our budget towards. People of limited resources and limited time, how do we discern what is best? Maybe how we reach our local community better. How we help people in our body to grow better. How we pastor and minister to people who are hurting and struggling. Maybe who we appoint as elders and leaders. Maybe how we plant better new churches. How do we discern what is best? That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. And you see, it's a, it's a huge, big picture prayer focused on the day of Christ, Jesus coming back, but it is so grounded and so nitty-gritty and it, it impacts our every second almost. Loving each other well now. Living well now because we have a discerning from him of what is best. course it's worth saying that there's a sense in which verse 10 as we speak of being pure and blameless as we speak of being filled with the fruit of righteousness we are that now in Christ do you know as God the father looks at you he sees you with the perfect pure spotless righteousness of God the son of Jesus who who took on flesh who died in our place who has risen and ascended to the father's right hand His account credited to yours. His perfection bestowed upon you. His righteousness is yours. But as through the Bible, there's this tension that in these bodies, in this place, at this time, we are a work in progress. We are being sanctified. We are becoming who we truly already are in Christ. But aren't there yet in this place. But on that day, it will be amazing. We will be the real us, perfected in him forever. And yet maybe your question is this. 
there's this niggling doubt and you thinking, you know, people are so annoying. And I find it so hard to forgive them. And I'm awful when it comes to discerning what is best. I'm constantly frittering away my time. And I'm always goofing up and I'm always getting it wrong. Seriously, you're telling me to pray for a love that abounds and to discern what is best and to be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness? Do you know me? Is that possible? Am I really going to look like that when Jesus returns? Does God work miracles? He, he does, but can I really grow in those, these things now, we're thinking? I've tried to change. I have, I promise you. I've turned over more new leaves than you've had hot dinners and it doesn't work. I said never again, but I always do. And I just seem to be trapped and I'm going round and round and round in circles. Is there any point in praying this kind of a prayer for someone like me? Perhaps we're thinking. But see how the verse continues in verse 11. It's very important we don't miss this. Actually, there are huge problems if we do miss this. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a key bit of what it means to discern what is best. It's, it's not about you and looking inside and trying really hard, being really clenched, gritting your teeth, mustering up all the kind of self-control that you can, all your hard work, trying to grow spiritual fruit yourself. Come on, I can do this. I can this time, I promise. Do you see, it's about Christ. He is where we look. It's his work in us. It's not trusting in law or effort or the kind of things of chapter 3 but looking to him. Paul found freedom in knowing Christ. And when we see that we're joined to him and we shall see his fruits growing in us. When Jesus comes back, Paul thinks of the Christians in Philippi. There's fruit trees at harvest time, branches hung low with ripe fruit, laden, drooping with righteous deeds. That Christ is worked in them and through them. Think love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The, the kind of people we long to be. The kind of people who look like Christ. But then those things worked out in righteous deeds day by day by day. Why? So that God will be glorified to the glory and praise of him. Do you know that these big picture prayers... These sweeping prayers in light of Jesus coming back, I think are such a helpful corrective for us. Because I look at my prayer list, or the things that I pray for, or the people that I pray for, and far too easily they turn into being daily circumstances, daily stresses, daily worries. And those things are good, and it's right that we pray about them. He, he's our Father in heaven who cares for us. He cares intimately for us. He cares about the details. But I wonder if we need to make a bit more space for these big picture ones, to think big, to pray in light of the end. That we as church family will, will not be satisfied in who we are. And yet that we might abound more and more and more in love for each other. And that as we know God better, we might have this growing insight into what it means to live in his world, to discern what is best. So that when Jesus comes back, He's been at work in us. And we look 
strikingly like him. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those two things for us. We pray that we might be a church increasingly that love each other, that our love may abound more and more. As we get to know you better, as we reflect upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus, as we think of the one who made himself nothing and died for a people who didn't deserve it, May our love increasingly be shaped by the kind of love that he has for us. And Lord, guard us from misunderstanding. Guard our hearts from misunderstanding. The way that we are made right with you. Would we be a people, please, who, who with Paul count all the things that we could boast in as rubbish because we know Jesus and we know what he has done for us thank you for your kindness thank you that you don't call us to do these things on our own but we do them through Christ keep our eyes fixed on him we pray in his name Amen